Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Today, we'll be talking to the head of the State Medical Association, and our healthcare expert, Megan Messerly, joins me for the interview. And as usual, we'll close with some to and fro on some issues of the day with myself and the Indies Managing Editor, Elizabeth Thompson. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and elsewhere. Wherever you listen, go on that platform and subscribe and rate us. Tell everybody you know. You should also check out the Nevada Independent site. We're a nonprofit news organization at thenevadaindependent.com. You can also make a tax-deductible contribution there. We appreciate all the support from our readers. Our guest today on Indie Matters is Catherine Romero. She's the head of the Nevada State Medical Association. She's an attorney who's worked on Capitol Hill, and she's now a regular fixture in Carson City. Catherine O'Mara, welcome to Indy Matters. Thank you. Also here is Megan Messerly, as I said. Hi, Megan. Hi, John. <laughs> All right. So Megan is here because she knows a lot about this subject matter, and you, you and I know each other a little bit, and I know a little bit about your issues. But, you know, I bet a lot of people listening don't know much about the State Medical Association. Talk about what it is, how many members you have compared to, like, how many doctors there actually are uh, in, in the state and what you do. Well, the State Medical Association advocates for physicians and patients and general public health at the state and local levels. We also work with the AMA on some federal advocacy. Um, basically, we support physicians so that they want to work and live here. Um, we have about 1,500 active practicing members. I think there's a little over 6,000 active licensed physicians in the state. Uh, at any given time, we have about 500 uh, medical students and residents that participate with us while they're in the state. And so uh, you're up in Carson City all the time, as, as I mentioned. You're lobbying on behalf of, of, of the causes of uh, physicians. Do you hold regular meetings? People might want to know. Do you, do you bring in people to speak from out, from out of state to, to the doctors? How does that work? Yeah, we, we do have an annual meeting once a year where we have an old school, traditional House of Delegates format. We debate policies based off of resolutions. That's all taken from the AMA format. They have their um, national meetings twice a year. This year, we're really excited. We're, we have CME opportunities, but this year in particular, we're going to do an October 1 look back, and we're going to have a panel of three physicians that were on duty the night of October 1st last year, and also the CEO of Sunrise Hospital and a representative from the Hospital Association. So we do have lots of opportunities to discuss the you know, the relevant, timely issues of the day. We have regular meetings um, to discuss policy. We're very busy. It's a busy healthcare interim, as I know Megan knows. And um, so we're, we're all over the place. Um, in addition to our work at the state, we have a few component local societies. So Clark County Medical Society is one of those component societies. They do a tremendous amount of um, continuing medical education, uh, town halls. We had a very successful town hall in December on the opioid issue, for example. So we're busy. Those are just a few examples. You guys have a PAC? We do. And, and do, do you, I think people might wonder, do, do you give mostly to Republicans, mostly to Democrats? Does it depend on who's in control of the legislature? Uh, how, do you, how do you make those decisions? Yeah, we're, we're a nonpartisan organization. So I've been with the organization since 2015, so I've only been through one cycle. We're smack in the middle of our cycle right now. We've just con, um, completed our like first round of interviews. Um, and it's coming down fairly even on the side of um, Republicans and Democrats. For us, you know, certain issues uh, we feel speak more to Republicans, certain issues speak more to Democrats. We really care about issues that impact our patients. Um, and, and really every legislator, if we can get in there and talk to them and explain our position to them, um, and can understand at some level that pa pa our patients are their constituents. And so it's really just a matter of building those relationships with them regardless of where they are on the aisle. Speaking of issues, this is where I'm going to let Megan jump in because there are a lot of issues uh, that are out there. If, if anyone who reads Nevada Independent, Megan covers a lot of these issues. So fire away, Megan. So I was going to start off talking about, I mean, obviously there's so many different healthcare-related issues here in Nevada, but sort of the underlying current and the thing that lawmakers and you talk about, pretty much everyone in the healthcare community talks about is there aren't enough doctors. And we hear about this physician shortage. You know, we're constantly ranking at the, at the bottom of lists, you know, whether it's 50th or 51st or 48th, you know, we, we tend to be in the bottom for a lot of those areas. Um, and there was a recent report from UNR School of Medicine, and, and they they showed that we, we have seen some improvements, right? But with population growth, that's, that's sort of canceled out a lot of the improvements that we've made. How do things feel from physicians' perspective, do you think, about 
having enough doctors here? Do they feel overworked? Do they feel like they can handle it? What, what is the state of things right now? I think there's general consensus that physicians in Nevada are overworked. Um, there's this, a recent study that put Nevada physicians as the third most overworked in, in the country. And by the way, nurses were ninth. So so we're not doing great um, with all of our healthcare professionals. We're, we're all very overworked. Um, I think we've seen some positive things happen in the last few years. Certainly the establishment of the UNLV Medical School uh, is going to be a key part to fight the workforce shortage. But as we remind legislators, it takes seven years to grow a primary care physician. And they like to see quick results because they've just passed law and now they want to see, or a budget item, now they want to see something they can take back to their voters. It takes time. Um, the other thing is we saw Governor Sandoval invest quite a bit into graduate medical education, um, and we are very grateful for that. Of course, we're that beggar that's saying we're grateful, but we really like some more. Um, so we would love to see a consistent, ongoing um, state investment in graduate medical education, and that's those residency programs that we really need. The residency programs are more directly linked to physicians staying in our state than even the medical schools are. And so we we're, we think that those two components are positive steps, but it's also like you're in the right direction, just stay on the path and keep moving towards that. Um, but yeah, physicians are feeling very, you know, burnout, um, not just from the sheer lack of numbers of them to their patients, but from the lack of connection with their patients. They're being asked to do a lot more. They're the highest paid, you know, paper pushers out there. Um, and, you know, for every one hour a physician spends with a patient, they have two hours of paperwork. So it's it's not just the sheer numbers, but it's also the pressures on them at every side to do more than just treat the patient that is kind of contributing to this burnout. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that our, our average age of physician is also slightly higher than the national average. That's something we definitely see at the medical society because we see people sort of aging out into our retired um retired member positions. And we know that there's not always a pipeline in in place. There's not always a successor. And that has real impact. Right. That was one of the things that struck me about the report was was looking at those ages and comparing that to the national averages. And in particular, that report found that um, in sort of what it categorizes northeastern Nevada, so the the rural counties, Elko and the surrounding counties, um, had an even older physician population. And, you know, obviously there's, if you sort of look at the average age, you know, some of those counties do just in general have a higher um, average age of its residents. But obviously with, there's always concerns about having enough doctors in, in the rural counties where you have even smaller numbers. How does that concern play out there about an aging workforce, but but focusing on the rurals? Well, the, everything that we say for the state is exacerbated in the rurals. Um, so you have an older population statewide, but I think we even have an average population of one specialty of 80. So and my father's 80 and he's retired. I mean, he's not going to be I mean, he's not a physician, but he, he's no longer in the position of being able to have an active um, active work life. And he shouldn't. He's put in his time. I mean, he should be enjoying his grandchildren and and um, letting younger folks take care of that. Um, you know, it's, it's important to acknowledge that physicians are going to have an, a higher average age because it takes so much longer to get out of school and out of residency into active practice. But you're right in noting, noting those northeastern numbers, northeastern Nevada numbers, because when those handful of physicians... Um, retire or are no longer working for whatever reason, that's going to leave a, um, a lack of care for those um, for those people who live in that community. And to put that in real context, you know, if we have one primary care uh, physician that is no longer able to work for whatever reason, it's at least a thousand patients that are now without someone. So where do those patients go? How do we reshuffle them? trying to get them into primary care before they end up into the emergency room. Sure. And whereas in Clark County, you know, you have a, a larger, you know, body of, you know, physicians. So you could sort of distribute that, you know, if it's a thousand, one physician retires, there's a thousand patients that now need a doctor. Maybe that can sort of be distributed more easily than in rural Nevada, where you only have a handful of doctors. And suddenly those handful of doctors are dealing with the loss of, of one physician. I know that's um, hit them recently. If you And if you lose a specialist, it, it can be horrible, too, if you don't have sort of anyone anyone to go to that's nearby. Yeah, I mean, we know there's a shortage in primary care because we see the numbers are, you know, close to thousands, right? Um, and and we want to improve those numbers because really primary care is preventative care and it leads to better overall 
quality of life. But we do have specialties where we have, you know, seven in the state or we just lost one of our um, female oncologists in northern Nevada that specialized in breast cancer to Utah. She went to Utah because she could work less hours and make about make the same amount of money and have a better lifestyle. And so now we have one remaining. So so those are real numbers. We're not we're not going from 200 to 198. We're going from two to one. Right. And I think maybe the average person doesn't think about really like you're mentioning before the time that's required, that the time that you have to put in to become a physician, it's not just medical school, but completing that residency. Maybe you do a fellowship if you want to specialize a little bit further. I, I don't know that most people think about sort of that in terms of years, the the amount of time it takes to not only get the basics, but then if you, if you want to specialize, go into that. How How is the state doing right now in terms of residency programs and fellowships? I mean, I know the answer is that we need more, but but where, where, where are we at right now? But, but I think I think it's important to acknowledge that we're better mm-hmm. than we have been sure, right sure. so um it, it's hard to know exactly what's needed people ask me all the time well if we had another 20 million where would you spend it sure. <laughs> and it's like sort of depends on what opportunities arise you know if we i, I know there's some effort to start a new anesthesia program for mm-hmm. example i don't believe that's been completed um so getting an anesthesia residency which is something we don't have currently would be great you know looking at where where are the where are the programs that we don't have at all um, and then there's always been an, an emphasis on primary care residency, and I think that obviously needs to continue as well. So, well, Let me just circle back on a sure. couple of things that Megan uh, brought up. And one thing that you said that actually astonished me, and I want to make sure I heard it right. Did you say that we've gone from having two oncologists that specialize in breast cancer in the state to one? Is that, is that what you said? Well, it's female breast the, oncologists, so there okay. are still several there are still several oncologists that are men. Right. Um, and not to not to discount their skills and their right. abilities. No, no, and no, no, also, this is the northern Nevada area. So in the northern Nevada area, which brings up the issue, and that's still relative, that's a very small mm-hmm. number with a, with obviously a very prevalent form uh, of cancer. Uh, doctor shortage overall, what specialties are we really, really hurting in here in Nevada right now? Uh, well, you know, that's a great question. And I know in John Packham's report, he spells that out. Mm-hmm. Um, Some of them are, I know psychiatrists were a big one that was mentioned. Um, family medicine is not a specialty, but that's obviously one that was They, that would, was they would maybe say that they are <laughs> yeah. specialty, but yes, I know But more saying. of a primary yeah, care versus right. like a, a specific kind I of I think cardiology care. is mm-hmm. on there. I think yeah. critical care is on mm-hmm. there. Uh, gastroenterology, I think mm-hmm. uh, we still need. I think some of the need pediatric subspecialties All the well. pediatric subspecialties yeah. I think we need. Um I think, and in fact, I think I mentioned anesthesia residency. That's actually one where we score better. Yeah, that was. I was um, actually kind of shocked by that. We weren't yeah. that far behind the yeah. national average. Yeah, we're, we're kind of right. I mean, we're kind of. I think we're thirty something. Yeah, um, so we're right in there. But that's for whatever reason the residency that came to mind. Both of you have used the word overworked, mm-hmm. and and I think some people listening might be scoffing, saying, "Oh, you know, I, I I'm overworked at my job too. Doctors should work a lot of hours." Mm-hmm. How is that defined? How what does that mean that doctors are overworked? That's a great question um, because I, I work for doctors and I'm a lawyer and I often feel overworked so, uh, and burnout. So I do I do understand that. You should come to our shop yeah. and you want to feel overworked. Um, I, you know, it's not so much the number of hours, although, I mean, I was just talking to a radiologist this week who's a leader who's working 80 hours this week. And this was a week he had set aside six months ago for his vacation with his family. So not only is he not taking his vacation, but he's working 80 hours this week. Um, you know, you do expect high performing professionals to work a lot of hours. The really important thing about burnout and overworking is not just that that profession is suffering, but that the patients suffer when physicians are overworked or burnout. So we we know that patients feel this disconnect with physicians who are unable to give them the same quality of time they used to give them. If that occurs, then they're less likely to trust them and they're less likely to conform to a course of treatment. So it actually bears out in our overall health because we don't um, feel as satisfied by our physician-patient interactions as we used to. Uh, and that, that was the point I was getting to. Uh, I mean, if if, if uh, Megan is overworked, maybe she'll have an extra couple typos and I, and I can <laughs> fix that, right? right? But a doctor is overworked. Uh, you can have bad patient outcomes. You can you can have all kinds of things go wrong. And, and I'm wondering if you, as an association, are, are tracking these metrics to some extent, because at some point, 
uh, it really is going to affect the quality of life of people here. And, and doctors are not going to want to be here. Patients are going to be loath to go to doctors here. It, it, could be, it could be a real problem. When does that hit critical mass? Do we know? Well, I think it's important enough of an issue to be working on right now. So um, we, we are working on physician burnout and we're working on physician wellness programs. Um, when we started looking at suicide prevention, which occurred last last session, there was a mandate for suicide prevention CME. And we started looking into that more deeply and we started realizing that actually physicians are pretty high um, high uh, profession to experience suicide. Um, and that is tied to this like loss of job satisfaction. And you're, you're absolutely right. It, it, the more they're burnt out, the more they're doing their electronic records at 2 a.m., the more likely for bad patient outcomes. Um, so we are attacking it at a state level with um, CMEs on physician wellness and trying to create physician wellness community programs um, in both Reno and Las Vegas. You, you keep saying CMEs, and m- maybe most people know what it is, but maybe you should <laughs> tell people what, what it is. I know what that means. CME are continuing medical education mm-hmm. credits, so physicians have a certain number they have to do every two years to renew their license in the state. And it's required in all states. Um, and as of last session, now they're required to take two units of suicide prevention CME every uh, um, every other licensing cycle. You're one of the few people who has to know what a CME and a CLE is, right? I have to know. <laughs> I have to know what a CLE is or, or my licensing board gets mad at me. So That's right. I'm sorry, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. No problem. I was going to talk about that. I mean, thinking about, too, this overwork, I know one of the issues that's come up lately, and this this came up with um, the changes to the to the opioids that, that were made, is and a lot of the concern that I know physicians expressed then was sort of about, about the paperwork. And I think that's another thing that maybe patients don't really realize is the, is the amount of paperwork that doctors spend. They think, okay, my doctor spends maybe five, ten minutes in the room with me, and then they disappear. You know, why aren't they spending an hour with me? But I, I think that there's probably not um, a sort of a broad-based understanding about sort of, you know, the you know insurance claims and everything they have to document and their medical charts and any other, you know, prior authorizations they or their you know, office staff might have to request. Are we seeing, and I know in some instances we are seeing more of this and, and more requirements from a state level, um, does it seem like there's an increasing burden put on doctors and are they are they able to manage that there there is an increasing burden put on doctors as far as paperwork goes the opioid um, law is a perfect example and on our website nvdoctors.org you can download um, off our opioid toolkit kind of a decision tree that a physician has to go through that includes every um, piece of paperwork that they have to fill out Um, we we've been working through regulations to streamline that a bit um but I, when I first created it and put it up at a CME opportunity, um, it looks like a very terrifying Candyland board, and <laughs> doctors did not love it. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you brought up prior authorization. That's another one. And, and we, we've, we like to try to work these things out with payers individually and not go straight to a policy fix. Mm-hmm. So we're in the process of um, surveying our members. The AMA did a, a large drive nationally, the American Medical Association, to survey their members about the impacts prior authorization are having on their practices and also on patients. Mm-hmm. We're looking at that in the state. Um, I, I don't know if we'll have a policy proposal this this uh, session mm-hmm. or if we'll wait on that and just try to work it out with the payers. But every time there's a prior authorization <laughs> that's required, which basically, let me just explain what prior authorization sure. is. You go to your physician and your physician says, you know, based on my diagnosis, I'm going to prescribe this medication to you or I'm going to prescribe this um, procedure. Um, your insurance requires that we prior authorize it. That means that the the physician's office needs to send in paper documenting that th- there's a medical necessity for it. Um, the insurance companies will look at that um, and determine if there's medical necessity. They're not telling you that it's going to be covered. They're just making a secondary um, sort of overview of whatever the physician who was in the room with the patient was originally determining. Mm-hmm. And then the preauthorizations are usually time limited. So that can be a real point of frustration if I have an oncologist tell me that they have to prior auth uh, one of their patients who has cancer every month for ongoing tre- treatments of chemotherapy. All of that is doing is shifting the cost over to the physician 
physician side, um, and it's impacting that patient's care. They're less likely to pick up their medications. They're less likely to schedule their procedure, and it's it's really not doing anything to bring cost of care down. And it's really adding a burden onto the physicians and the patients. More importantly, so we've been looking at that to see. We feel that that is increasing. We're looking at quantifying it um, and surveying our members to see. You know, what can we do? Can we work with? the state health plans to, to fix that problem. Right. Because, I mean, the insurance companies, right, would argue from their perspective, they're trying to be, you know, responsible, make sure that patients are only getting the care they need. And I know the pushback from the doctors as well, you know, we're, we're trained experts. This is our thing. You know, we know, we know the medicine that our patients need. We know the procedure our patients need. Is there some sort of middle ground there in between, you know, helping the insurance companies feel like they're being fiscally responsible while, you know, reducing some of the burden on doctors? Is there a middle ground? I think so. I, I don't think we're saying there shouldn't be any preauthorization. Um, you know, and, th- and the reality is with our litigious society, we do have defensive practice of medicine going on. Um, but but some of the things like if you get a preauthorization at the beginning of a chemotherapy schedule, you don't have to do it again, you know, maybe for a year or maybe until the end, that course of treatment is over. Or if you're a good actor as a physician where your prior authorizations are never denied, you know, maybe you're given a, a better scoring and, and they don't require you to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it has become um, increasingly just a way to sort of prevent people from actually fulfilling mm-hmm. uh, the things that they need. You brought up the point of defensive medicine. I think probably most people don't know what that is. Can you explain a little bit about what defensive medicine is and how that ties into prior auths? Um, you know, physician, I, I don't know the connection between that and prior authorizations necessarily because I'm speculating from our perspective. I think the payers may have a different feeling on it. But physicians are trained to rule out things based on whatever you present with. So when you first come in and you have certain, you know, you have certain ailments, they they start with everything it could possibly be and they start ruling it out. That doesn't mean they run tests for everything. But if you show up to the ER with um, a chest pain, they're going to treat you like maybe you're having a heart attack even if maybe what you end up having is indigestion. And as they let the tests go through and they review the tests, then they kind of adjust their diagnoses. Again, I'm a lawyer, not a (laughs) clinician, so that's just my understanding. Um, If you break your leg in Tonopah, for example, and you get care flighted to Reno, by the time you see an orthopedic surgeon, they may run a new X-ray because there may have been some shifts in um, in what has happened to you as you've been transferred even if you just had an x-ray earlier that same day. That's kind of what we're talking about. You know, Megan's written a lot uh, of pieces about the Affordable Care Act and about the wrangling over the Affordable Care Act to repeal it or not to repeal it, the various developments there. Uh, Be as candid as you can here. How many times a day do you have a, a conversation with one of your members that includes the words Affordable Care Act followed by or preceded by a four letter word? Um, well, you know, <laughs> I have several conversations about the Affordable Care Act weekly um, with with various physicians and their and their teams. Um, I, I, there's it might not surprise you. There's not consensus in the Nevada State Medical Association about whether or not pieces of the Affordable Care Act should be um, repealed or not. Um, I don't know that we had uniformity that it should be that we were in favor of it when it was passed, just right. like Governor Sandoval was not necessarily in favor of it. He was not it. in favor of it. You're right. Um, but we have an expansion population. I think we do um, We do like to see patients insured. I think that's really important. So I think just like anybody, we're, we're living in the world that we that we have and we're trying to figure out what's what can we do with the situation we have? My, my experience with doctors I go to see is that they always want to, uh, after they tell me everything's fine, uh, uh, they, they always want to just tell me because they know what, what, what I do for a living, all the things that they should have done with the affordable character. How could they have been so dumb as to not? The doctors, I mean, they get frustrated with politicians, right? Because medicine, insurance, it's very complex, uh, and, and, they, and they do things that, that – Doctors think, well, that's obviously wrong. You should have done it this way. Do you hear that same kind of talk? I think it's two different languages, right? Yep. So they're they're they really live in black and white. And I think one of the benefits of having someone like me that is a lawyer, that is a six kid of t- nine kids, um, and used to being in the middle of a large dinner table where there's a lot of disagreement, is I can say things to them like, "You are not wrong, but it doesn't matter," you know. And, <laughs> and they don't love to hear that, but I think it's important to say because policymaking is different than 
treating a patient. Um, the the members of the Nevada State Medical Association they are totally dedicated. I mean they they treat patients from seven a.m. to five p.m. They come over to a meeting from six to eight o'clock or to interview candidates or whatever because they want to be part of the solutions. They want to help us find policies that. Um, will protect patients and and make sure that healthcare and they they want to be able to recruit physicians to the state. I mean that's one of the biggest that's actually one of the biggest criticisms that I hear of our healthcare system in general in the state. It takes a year and a significant amount of money to recruit a physician here. It takes at least a year to get them up and running where they're actually now making money, generating, seeing patients and all of that kind of thing. And they like to live here. They, they love Nevada, and they want to be able to sell Nevada to other physicians to come here. So they, they do struggle a little bit with our political process. Um, I'm learning more and more about how the ACA was formed and, and the physician um, role in that and, and feeling like maybe they didn't get really any sort of return on that. So, Right. Oh, we got about five minutes left, Megan. Yeah. So uh, bouncing off of the Affordable Care Act, and this is something that you and I have talked about and, and you talked about at a recent interim legislative health committee meeting, um, this idea of narrow networks and, you know, what are patients actually getting when they're choosing a health insurance plan? You know, what, what benefits are they getting? Are they able to see the doctor they want to? Are they able to go to the hospital with the doctor there that they want to? Um, why is this a, a growing concern maybe for doctors? One of the impacts of the ACA has been a move to narrow networks, and I don't think that's a surprise. I don't think it's a secret. Um, payers are sending more volume to fewer physicians and hospitals in exchange for a better rate. Um, the problem for patients is that on the non-emergent side, we don't really know what the networks look like. I, I, and I, I don't mean to disparage the insurers on this. We have a workforce shortage, um, but I don't believe that we really have very good um, provider directories. From my own experience or and just listening to other patients, you know, you go through a list of 10 doctors to finally find one that's actually available or actually even on the network. So I think that just, you know, I think it just feels right to us that there's a problem there. On the emergent side, it's even um, more of a problem because, it's not like necessarily that a patient always can choose which hospital they're going to go to or choose which emergency room they're going to go to. They are going to the one that makes the most sense for them at the time they're experiencing the emergency. And we want them to do that. That's a better policy. That's why physician ethics and federal law require a physician to, to treat whoever walks in the door, regardless of whether they have insurance. But they can often find out later, I, I've been paying for this insurance plan, and I'm surprised to find out I don't have coverage at this actual hospital. So I think for us, you know, if we're going to move to a narrow network um, system, on the non-emergent side, it has to be transparent. And we don't really support it on the emergent side. There's got to be some, some broader-based coverage for patients. Whether they end up at the Summerlin Hospital or Sunrise Hospital, they should be covered. Um, at, at a rate that's going to encourage the workforce in Nevada to continue to grow and um, to actually have the resources available for patients when they need them. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the hospital, that was a discussion during the last le legislative session. And I know the conversations are ongoing now as far as the, you know, what happens if you're transported to a hospital that's out of network? You know, maybe you're not even conscious and you're in an ambulance and you end up at a hospital through no fault of your own. What should the, what should, you know, what should you have to pay? Um are you, as the association, a part of those ongoing conversations? We are. Uh, Assemblyman Sprinkle is the chair of health. Assembly Health has convened a working group, and we're, we are part of those discussions. So we're hopeful that we can reach an, an agreement that will um, encourage contracting mm -hmm. and will um, protect patients. I'm curious, too, just and I know we don't have that much time left, but what some of the association's priorities are headed into the next legislative session? What's what's on your mind right now? Uh, mainly two buckets, right? The first is developing the workforce. So that's things from preventing bad legislation who might that might impact the workforce, preserving good legislation that we have and also promoting additional um uh, investment in things like GME and the med schools, the Medicaid reimbursement rates. And the other bucket is really making sure that where patients have coverage, that coverage is meaningful. So we talk a lot about access to health care, and we, I think we all agree that access to health care is good, but access to an insurance policy does not necessarily mean you have access to health care if there's no providers on the other end that can actually see you when you need to be seen. 
Uh, I've been lucky enough since I've been here, I'll wrap with this. Uh, I've seen several specialists over the years, and they have been fantastic doctors. But you know that this perception has been here ever since I've been around uh, uh, Nevada. You ask somebody, where do you go when you get sick? And the answer is McCarran. You've, you've heard the joke. Uh, there have been many prominent elected officials who have had surgeries, and they've gone out of state to have those surgeries. Uh, how do you change that? Can you ever change it? Are, are, are your members concerned about that? About the perception. Yeah, Dr. Jeffrey Roth, who is uh, a local Las Vegas physician, is the new president of Clark County Medical Society. And his, in his inauguration speech, he said, we are changing that. That is not going to be a joke that people freely embrace. Um, I think it's promoting the talent that we do have, because like you said, we do have some tremendous talent, not only in Las Vegas, but statewide. Right. Um, and the other thing is, it, it, when it's a joke, it feels like it's no big deal. You just go there. And that's that's a misperception, right? We need to continue to invest in that high quality care. All right. Well, we really appreciate you you're taking time. Maybe Dr. Roth will come on the podcast, too. He sounds like he'd be a great guest. He's a great, he's a great guy. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. you learn a lot from him. Thanks so much for coming on the, on, on the podcast. We really do appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Megan, thanks for asking all those great questions. Yeah, and then you are not overworked, so no typos in your stories <laughs> later. We'll be back in a moment uh, with Elizabeth Thompson. Welcome back to the Indie Matters Podcast. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Joining me, my partner in crime, Elizabeth Thompson, the managing editor and the person who makes the indie run. Thanks for coming, Elizabeth. No crimes that can be proven. None, none, none that can be proven. We are innocent until proven guilty. Uh, so let's talk about an issue that, that has been bothering both of us and I think uh, uh, others as well uh, that, that, that I wrote a piece about that's on the, on the site. And I hope people go on the Ralston Reports blog and, and check it out. But there's been a lot of Twitter activity about it. Uh, from my account, from your account, and from uh, others uh, chiming in. And I, it, this column was triggered by our sit-down with Mark Amaday this week, who sat down with myself and uh, uh, most of our reporters for 90 minutes. He was incredibly accessible. He would have stayed uh, for, for two or three hours, I think, if he didn't have a luncheon meeting. He he, he praised our reporters being old school in, in terms of how fair they are and how thorough and that they always ask him before uh, writing a story. And, and it just... Uh, Elizabeth, it made me think about how that contrasted with the behavior of, and it really, I want to emphasize this to the folks who are listening. It's a very small number of candidates and their operatives, mostly Dean Heller, the U.S. Senator, and Adam Laxalt, the Attorney General running for governor, and to a lesser extent, because he's running for a lesser office, Michael Roberson, the, the uh, state senator, who have essentially been a very sneering and nasty uh, and and by the way, you used the word and I did in a libelous uh, way attack the uh, Nevada Independent because they don't like mostly things that I've written about them as a political analyst and commentator or said or or posted on social media about them and they've taken that out and essentially accused the the the, the Independent of being what they call a pay to play blog essentially saying people who donate to us which all of our donors are are, are listed on the site uh, get something out of it they've never cited any examples for that because they can't. Uh, and they've essentially said that we're a corrupt organization. I, I guess I had finally had enough and decided to call them out. Yeah, I had had enough, too, which is why I was happy to have you call them out, you know, and talk through it with you about exactly what we were going to say and how far we were going to take it and whether we were going to share with people uh, the emails we have received from operatives and, and staffers from the Laxald and Heller office and from Roberson's people as well, basically saying, yeah. Your pay for play. We don't consider the Nevada Independent a credible source of news, and we're not playing. Uh, it's outrageous. It's ridiculous. It's petty, uh, and it's based on, as you said, no evidence whatsoever. Uh, I, I would cite as a prime example on this issue of who we take money from and the fact that we sometimes have to cover them. It says at the top of our donor page, we take money from anyone who wants to support our mission. And yes, we sometimes have to cover them, in part because Nevada is a small state. Switch and Envy Energy are both donors, big donors, 
to the Nevada Independent, Riley Snyder has written dozens of stories on energy issues that at one time or another uh, could be seen by either of those donors as not great for them or their cause, um, and yet they support the mission as a whole, which is credible, accurate, independent, nonpartisan journalism, which is exactly what we deliver. I could give dozens of other examples. So I'm just, I'm tired of it. It's ridiculous. Uh, And what really irks me the most, you know, the campaigns can do as they see fit. If the campaigns don't want to talk to us, they want to deny the reporters access and be that petty, that's their choice. They can run their campaign any way they, they wish. But when the official public offices of the attorney general of the state and a U.S. senator are refusing to answer questions by a perfectly credible news organization and perfectly respectable, in fact, award-winning reporters, every one of them on our team, that's a problem because we're accountable to the public and so are they. Uh, And I don't think they should have the option to just ignore the emails of not just our reporters, but any reporter for any credentialed news organization in the state or country. There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, You sounded like John Ralston. You talked talked so much. Uh, But but you said a lot of of things that I I want to pivot off of, and and that is a very important one. And I want to tell people I mentioned this. Uh, and you and and you mentioned it as well in the in the Daily Indie our, our, our newsletter. Uh, we don't we we have reached our breaking point with this. Not in the sense that we really care if they talk to us as much, but they are preventing the public from getting public information. That's their job. These offices. We are seriously considering legal action, not just on our behalf, but on behalf of 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 the public and other uh, journalism uh, organizations. Absolutely. Look, we have eighty to a hundred thousand unique. Readers. These are the faithful readers of the Nevada Independent. We're not talking about a small group of, of readers. Uh, and many of these people, I presume, are voters uh, and engaged citizens. And they have every right to have their questions answered uh, through us. And there's no justification uh, for uh, for avoiding that or flouting that system. But, but one, one thing I didn't mention and, and that I really b- believe, a couple of things actually. First of all, I don't even think they believe what they say, that we're a pay-to-play blog, that we do this. They, they, they're, they're trying to smear us to hurt our credibility. I really don't actually think they believe it, but it doesn't matter, right, that they're putting it out there. But what their motivation is, is they think they're punishing us by doing this. And this is what I find to be so laughable and shows what hacks these people are. And by the way, that the, the elected officials, they are doing this on, on behalf of our candidates, are, are doing this because they are afraid. It, they are afraid to answer tough questions. They're afraid they can't answer them or that they will create a political issue that their opponents uh, can use. It is out of fear. But they don't punish us, Elizabeth. We still, Our reporters are still doing their jobs fairly. They don't hold grudges. Uh, by the way, even though I'm an opinion person, I was for, I've been for more than a quarter of a century, I don't hold grudges. And I'm fine with these. I'm fine. I, I understand they're going to say things about me, very nasty things to kill the messenger. It's part of covering politics. When they don't like what you're doing, they're going to kill the messenger. What I will not abide, though, and I know you feel the same way, is I'm attacking the integrity, essentially, of an organization and, by extension, our staff, which I, I – listen, I'm biased. So are you. I believe is the finest staff in journalism in Nevada and, and maybe one of the finest staffs everywhere. The, 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 no one works harder. No one produces more in-depth pieces. No one, None of these reporters uh, – no, no reporters anywhere bend over as backwards as they do to try to be fair. And they probably shake their heads when they read one of my columns or see my tweets, right? We've had those discussions internally, but they know. And, and the, the, they know that, the, the, that, that our brand, that, that what we stand for is fairness and transparency. And there is nothing any of these people can point to who have called us essentially a pay-for-play organization that matches up to those accusations. That's correct. And I, I'm going to add a few things to that. So – it's been a topic of discussion for some years now, um, this issue of bleed over or crossover between news and opinion, right? It's It started with cable news where you've got commentators hosting shows. They're not 
really what I would call journalists. They're, you know, they, they have an opinion, they have a point of view, they have an ideology, and they host the show uh, you know, from, that, from that place. And there are some journalists like yourself who have done both news and opinion, some analysis, some commentary, some straight reporting. Uh, you've done that all for you, most of your uh, career, um, and you and I discussed, and I want our listeners to know when we talked about launching the indie, we discussed this. You know, should John Ralston continue to be John Ralston? Should he continue uh, to sometimes report the news and sometimes write an opinion column and, and say what you think on Twitter and so on and so forth? And we agreed, yeah, you should. There's no reason that you should stop doing that because on the Nevada Independent website, we separate news from opinion. There's no mixing it up. There's no mistaking it. What's on the front page as straight news is written by the reporters, and it, it's just that. It's unbiased, factual, accurate, transparent news. I stand by every word we've ever published. And, and by the way, if our listeners don't know this, you and I both read every word um, and edit these stories together a, as a team. It's, and, and the reporters participate in that process with us as well. And so what's on the opinion page or what you write in your Flash Morning newsletter or choose to tweet or when you write a Sunday column, that's completely separate. I think the average reader, voter, person uh, who follows us and follows you completely understands that. And so I agree with you. Team Heller and Team Laxalt and Team Roberson are not – you know, they're not affecting public opinion on this in any way. People already have formed their opinion on it. But what I don't take kindly to, as you said, um, is disparaging the credibility of our reporters and our staff because they absolutely do not deserve that. You know, I can't change uh, 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 who I uh, am or who I was. I have a huge paper trail. People know how I feel about a lot of issues. I, I think I've dialed it back in certain ways, but I, but I feel passionately about something. I think I should still say it. I've been around the longest now in terms of commenting on politics. I, I think it's, you know, I, I don't want to sound arrogant, but 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 I still think there's some value in having me comment uh, on things. But well, people want to know. I mean, when you when you don't comment on things, we get emails and people asking, "What does Ralston think about this?" So I, there there is a there is a market well, for your opinion. But what I want to be clear either about both how you and I both feel too, and this goes into our whole uh, mission, uh, at, at the end of you say you stand by every word, and I know what you mean, and, and, and we do. On the other hand, we're fallible. We are going to make mistakes. Our reporters are going to make mistakes. We may make, and I'm talking about mistakes that range from a typo all the way to a mistake in news judgment. We are going to make those mistakes. But what I'm saying to people, and people can judge us uh, by what's on that site, those mistakes are not mistakes because we were paid more by one donor or the other. They're, they're mistakes because we made a bad decision. We were tired. We simply missed it. We are going to make uh, mistakes. Uh, and, and, and the effort which, by the way, has become all too prevalent now. It's always existed. Of I mentioned earlier, of killing the messenger. The president of the United States has done this in a much more rhetorically harsh way than anyone who has ever been around. And so they are capitalizing on that. These campaigns that we talked about, they're using, they're going right out of the Trump playbook, trying to trying to delegitimize a ma a mainstream news outlet. We are a mainstream news outlet. Um, uh, I, I know that the, the newspapers and TV stations can consider us that way and we as just as we consider ourselves in their in their ballpark. So they can try as hard. I'm not worried about them having any success. That's not why you and I are upset. We're upset because you and I uh, supervise a tremendously talented and hardworking team and at some point I was not going to sit back and nor were you and let them be smeared by a bunch of hacks who don't like the fact that they're doing what they're doing or don't like me. Yeah, and you and they've and you've been smeared uh, too by someone who will remain nameless because he doesn't deserve to be named, but he knows who he is, um, who has said that you have deliberately solicited, in fact, harassed politicians and elected officials uh, for donations as, as, as if you're some kind of you know, pay-to-play guy, right, where you're aggressively out there basically holding the power that you wield as editor of the Nevada Independent in order to to get donations. That is complete and utter nonsense. Why do you think they never it present any evidence? It well, because there is none. <laughs> um, 
There are very few elected officials who donate to the Nevada Independent. You can go to the donor page for yourself, listeners, and glance on down that list. There's not many of them. There's a couple. And frankly, John and I, I think we'd prefer that they don't absolutely give to us. I mean, we we're grateful for the donations. Don't get me right, wrong. But I, the but perception. we would we would but because of the you know this issue raises this other issue of of perception that if you if we agree to take donations from an elected official, whether it's five dollars or five thousand dollars or what have you, um, then these questions can be raised by people, uh, you know, with nefarious. Uh, motives. And frankly, what we really would like to do and what our goal has been from the beginning is become a reader-supported news organization, meaning that the people who read us, who give $5 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month, $50 a month, whatever they can afford to give as a donation to support a mission, that's where our revenue uh, comes from. Ideally, all of it uh, would come from from there. And we're working towards that goal. We're trying to get there. Right now, we're not quite there. We're grateful to our corporate donors. We're grateful to the sponsors of some of our uh, events. This has helped us pay the bills uh, and pay the paychecks of our, of our great um, team. But we have never actively solicited a donation from a politician or an elected official, nor would we. Um, and I'm, I'm looking to the listeners and the readers now to help uh, support us um, just to take this issue off the table. Yeah, I mean, and you said, I just want to be clear, even though I don't even think I have to make this distinction, uh, and the person that you're talking about is an Adam Laxalt person who has said uh, falsely that I, that, that I solicited Laxalt and he wouldn't give, which is why we're not... Such uh, a lie. We've uh, never asked Adam Laxalt and Steve Sislak, his opponent, uh, 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 before he started running for governor of his own volition, gave a relatively small contribution. That I, I, you know, I wish that didn't exist, but no one's going to believe that the amount of money, I believe if it's a thousand dollars, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, that he gave is influencing a- a- anyone's coverage. Listen, Elizabeth, we talked about this. Morning. I don't want to go on too long about this, but we're wrapping now by asking people to contribute. And, and, and I hope that, listen, I, I'd never, in all of my uh, uh, dreams of being in journalism, thought that I would have to take on the role of fundraiser. You and I have had many conversations about this. It's an inherently uncomfortable one for me, but I believe in the mission of the independent so much. And I, and I believe because I have spent so much time covering politics that whatever credibility I've earned has earned us a lot of those corporate uh, donations. And I love our corporate donors. I'm glad that they believe in us. You mentioned Switch and Envy Energy, the best example you, you, you could give because they're on opposite sides and the most expensive issue on the ballot. There are gaming companies that gave, some of whom don't like each other and, and, and contribute to different parties. And, and so the, 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 I, I love our corporate donors. I'm, I'll let you jump back, back in, in, in in a minute. But what you said is right. The way that we are going to be sustainable over the long haul, yes, I I hope we keep getting corporate money, is from people listening right now. Uh, And yes, some of our corporate donors are probably listening now too, we hope and thank you. But people, all all we're asking to to make this really something that's going to be special and sustainable for many, many years to come is for people to give small donations a month, whatever you think you can afford, $5, $10, $25, whatever it is, because uh, you you don't want people like the people we're talking about now to try to shut us down, which is really their ultimate goal. They're not going to succeed, but the best way for us to be sustainable over the long haul is to have small, sustainable, recurring donations. Yeah. So let me just share with the listeners real quick. Our, our annual budget is uh, right around $1.5 million a year. That's mostly payroll uh, and benefits for uh, the staff. We have Maybe I asked for too much with that million-dollar salary, <laughs> but what the <laughs> He's kidding. He's, he is so kidding. Um, They're going to find out pretty soon, right? Uh, they are, because as a nonprofit, uh, we have to post a, a form called a 990 online, which shows details about what our chief executive uh, is paid and, and how much we take in. That That's all very transparent. You can match that all up with what you find on our donor page. You'll find no disparities. We're very careful about that. But but uh, if you do the math on $1.5 million a year, um, if about 12,000 people, and we have many, many more readers than that, if, only, if about 12,000 people every month gave $5 to the Nevada Independent, we would be flush. We wouldn't need another dime. We could do exactly what we're doing and keep on doing it forever. It's, it's not insurmountable. Um, we have the readership. I hope the readers will uh, agree to do this. And I just have to say this. I thought of something funny this morning, right? So there's this uh, this sarcasm about our corporate donors. I know these are the same businesses that the Indy covers. MGM Resorts, 
one of our biggest donors. Um, number one, we've written a number of stories which MGM may or may not have been thrilled with. I suspect not um, uh, over the time that we've been in business. Number two, MGM um, is a really big donor to both Adam Laxalt uh, and Senator Heller as well. In fact, to every uh, major elected official in the state um, because MGM, just like all the other big gaming companies, kind of generally support the civic fabric. And that includes supporting uh, elected officials who can benefit Nevada in some uh, way or another. So, um, you know, if we're corrupt because we took some money from MGM, you know, what does that say about these politicians? I, I think it's a slippery slope for all of us to start pointing fingers and saying, oh, you're corrupt because, you know, you took some money from uh, so-and-so. The credibility is in how you carry yourself, how you behave, the accuracy and truthfulness of the information you uh, put out, and that's what we stand on. Judge us by the product. You're, you're absolutely right, and that's great. Uh, I don't know why you think injecting logic into all this uh, uh, or, the <laughs> pro- or the prospect of hypocrisy. And I want to say this, and, and, and uh, I, I want people to know this. Our largest donors right now are MGM and and Switch, I, I, I believe. And I want everybody listening to know the following. Jim Murren the head of MGM, Rob Roy, the head of Switch, or any uh, anyone who has ever who works for them uh, in any capacity has never never called anybody myself, Elizabeth or anybody else affiliated with the independent to say, "Hey, I gave you a bunch of money. I want you to cover or not cover something." It has not happened. You know why? Because they know it would do no good. Absolutely. No, we wouldn't dream of it. Everyone who knows John Ralston or me knows um, that that just wouldn't happen. We, we make it clear uh, up front. It's part of our initial conversation, even though we don't probably have to say it because it's common sense. But when we do talk to these donors coming on board, we make sure it's, it's clear. You know, so- you're giving to support the mission, not for a certain type of coverage. So um, we've spent uh, uh, way too long up on our high horse uh, uh, <laughs> talking way more than we like to about ourselves. But we Elizabeth care. and I, uh, I, want you, I want you to know we really do care deeply about these issues. We care deeply about, about the uh, uh, credibility uh, of this organization that we've all worked so hard to build o- over, over 18 months or so. And, and we want to hear what, what, what you think about it. So we're happy to take your feedback. Elizabeth, thanks for, for coming in, especially passionate ending segment uh, today. That is all the time that we have uh, for this edition of the Indie Matters uh, podcast. In case you don't remember, you can also listen to that interview uh, with uh, Catherine O'Mara, the head of the uh, State Medical Association, Thursdays at 8.30 on KUNV. Uh, we want to know what you think, too, about this podcast. If you have uh, ideas, criticism, or even praise, email us at ideas at the nvnd.com. Check out the site, if you haven't already, the nevadaindependent.com. That little button that says support our work is the one you should be looking for, too. Thanks for anybody who wants to support us. We really appreciate it. Please go on iTunes, subscribe. You can find us on Google Play. Rate us. Uh, let us know what you think. Uh, once again, I want to thank Catherine Amaro for coming on and Megan Messerly for asking all those great questions. As always, I want to thank our wonderful hosts here at KUNV on the campus of UNLV. And as always, many, many thanks to Joey Lovato, our fantastic producer up in Reno, who makes us all sound... Podcast smooth. Elizabeth Elizabeth did that very, very well. She was less than her podcast smooth self today, though, I will say, because she is incredibly passionate about these issues, as passionate as I am, and I am never podcast smooth. I'm John (laughs) Ralston, the editor of Nevada Independent. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters. We'll talk to you next week. (laughs) 